Hi everyone, welcome. Good to see you. Those coming in, you know, we can we can actually fill in this space too if you don't mind sitting on the floor. Um, you know, this space is uh, up for grabs too. Um, uh, thanks so much. It's great. Uh, such a packed crowd and it's wonderful for you to be here and I'm so excited that you are here. Uh, tonight's reading, um, welcome, welcome. Um, tonight's reading is uh, our graduating uh, MFA uh, writers. Um, it is uh, uh, Zachary Bushnell, Va- Valentina Calvace, uh, Didi Losa and Allison Ogunmokun. Um, we're so excited to have um, this graduating class reading um, tonight for us. Um, we're really thrilled and we're excited to celebrate with them uh, after all their hard, hard work. Um, before we start, I want to go ahead and ask you guys all to silent, uh, silence phones and devices um, for the reading. Also, I want to let you know that we're going to have one final event next Monday, this coming Monday, June 3rd, right here in this room at 5 p.m., our graduate MFA student, Wamboy Wainana, who could not read uh, the uh, last week, will be reading uh, with other graduate students, uh, possibly from the second year, um, uh, on Monday, June 3rd at 5 p.m., so please come out for that. We'd love to see you um, for that last reading. Um, also, as we're uh, nearing the close of another great uh, academic year, another year of, of readings, uh, new writing series events, I want to say thanks to a few people. Um, I'd like to say thank you to our new writing series uh, assistant, Valentina, for all of our hard work. Uh, this year, I also want to say uh, thanks to our amazing MFA director, Anna Joy Springer, um, for all her leadership. I'd also like to thank our MFA graduate coordinator, Tanya Mayer, for all of her hard work. Many, many of us, including myself, would be lost without Tanya's hard work and organization. We love Tanya. Um, we'd also like to thank Nina Mamakunian uh, over in Geisel Library, the curator for uh, the new Archive for New Poetry. Nina's work has been uh, essential, um, instrumental to this series and, and, and given us that great space in the library. Um, so huge thanks to Nina. And lastly, we'd like to thank all the folks in the administration uh, who really make this series possible for us in so many ways, specifically Nancy Ho Wu, Danica Chan, and Derek Chin. And then, of course, thank you to all of you for coming out and making this um, literary arts community really possible. So thanks so much again. So we'll start off uh, with Zachary. Uh, we'll all be introducing the next upcoming reader. So we'll start off with Zachary, and I'll introduce Zachary. Zachary uh, Tikchar Bushnell is an interdisciplinary artist. His work explores the boundary between improvisation and accident. Please welcome Zachary. Hello. This is exciting. The last time I was here, uh, well, I'm going to try something new. This time I'm going to speak. The last time I was here, I didn't. The, these are selections from a, a longer piece, but they're nice little you know, vignettes. 
Akash Pandey owned and operated a tea stall at Jantar Mantar. Every day for 33 years, Pandey arrived at his spot along the lane beneath a banyan tree by 7 a.m. and started to grind his spices for chai. For the rush, said Pandey, from 8 a.m. until about 10 when I use up more than I can crush. Pandey lit the burner on his propane stove at 7.34 a.m., enough to suggest a superstition associated with the digits. On AC 031200, Akash Pandey was one of the first people to witness the Arlo Turia performance, later titled Credit. The man was there with the ATM before I reached, Pandey said, when officers questioned him over the steam of their teas. I noticed the man before I spoke to him. He was here when I arrived. There was never an ATM in the street there before. They were past my spot. We get a lot of shows and protests on this road. So I figured this was some sort of activism. He just stood there, this guy, his hands on the ATM. Never turned or moved around. After he... After I lit the stove, I went to ask if he wanted a chai. He was still as an idol. I got nervous and stayed some distance off. Now I am glad only that I did not see his condition up close. He did not respond when I offered him tea. I could tell he was focused from his posture. Maybe he wants to lift the ATM with his mind, I thought. Humans can do such things. People make rings appear out of thin air and lift cars off babies off cliffs in snow. Anyway, maybe he was asleep. He did not speak, so I went back to the stove. Customers show up. Someone must have called. I know better than to get involved with police and crazy people, officers. Pandey mentioned business was good that day from the extra people plus media and cops. Adin Mir and I were tenants in the apartment where Zeta D'Souza saw Sambalke for the second time. Arlo Turia also attended the performance at our flat. However, he left in the middle of the third act. Kalimo Volenti required safe spaces with small audiences in which to perform Sambalke and issued a perpetual venue request for most of AC 0204. After Adin and I offered our house for a show in AC 0307, Volenti visited us to vet the space. After we walked her through the flat to determine where she could prepare and enter the hall from, we examined our lamp options, which were no more than a few CFL bulbs with shades, two on one stand and one in an angle poise, plus the chandelier Volenti sat beneath when we settled from the tour. How did this project begin? Aden asked Volenti. Naked. Valenti said. I know that, said Adin. We saw the performance. <laughs> At Adda, I said. Sambalke began as a photo series, Valenti said. Ekisha Chaudhary was over. She and Adin sat on a gadda against the west wall of our front hall. I sat on a couch to the south, and Kalima sat in the middle of the room on a chair with an imperial blue upholstered seat cushion. 
Our habit was to keep just two of the eight chandelier arms lit with bulbs, though we told Valenti there were six more halogens available in a spare kitchen cabinet. I worked with Alopa Sen, Kalima said, the photographer. These were nudes. We clicked at night only in public places where female bodies get policed by day. So, everywhere, said Akisha. In Shapurjat, said Kalima, I posed in front of jewelry shops. We have shots from the inner gully at Khan Market, from ATM kiosks and the ruins at Hazkas, even under the arches at CP, next to Zara and Sephora. We used the artificial light on location and tried to occupy the CCTV frames to make sure those ephemeral documents of our whole procedure. Arrival, setup, disrobe, multiple poses, how Alopa and I both go still at the moment she clicks, clothe, clean up, plus whatever discussions we had about angles and positions and small talk. Entire events written over, destroyed on a 24-hour cycle. The photos are the only proof of our actions, yet the existence of those temporary, temporary records makes each photo an integral remainder, excessive and unique. The eight limbs of the chandelier were adorned with cylindrical frosted glass tassels that jangled when the wind blew in and cascaded along the thin frosted discs at their ends. Single exposures from lost reels of footage, said Aden. Even the preparation becomes part of the performance, I said. I'll skip. So the basic premise of this piece is this fellow who's a, a theater director falls in love with the image of a woman on an ATM screen who appears after he makes his transaction. So after he inputs his information, the picture of the woman appears and he becomes infatuated. So this is the first section where, and this, this infatuation is kind of the driving, uh, the, what drives the plot. So this is when we get introduced to his paramour. In an AC05 interview for Open Magazine, director Arlo Turia responded to a question about the source of inspiration for his latest work, Credit, with the phrase, if she had been a dog, she would have bit me. Turia traced the idiom to his uncle, used most with respect to keys, which, for several minutes before he left the scene, the man would pat his torso in search of, comb the cushions, check the bathrooms for, until his left thigh inevitably jingled the perennial cue for him to say, if they had been a dog, etc. Later, in an AC06 article he wrote for Page Down, Turia described his first encounter with what he called his terminal muse. This was Diwali season, AC02. The market was strung with an abstruse arbor of lights, gaudy and festive at once. Pedestrian walkways were crowded with tables, covered in pastel parcels of dried fruit and desserts from local sweet shops. Tailors hung their winter fashions just above the bustle, 
from the illuminated lattice of electrical cables overhead. I usually withdrew from the JCAL ATM across the block from my apartment, but that machine is so slow to retract and return cards that I feel myself grow old as I stand there. So I went to the Urbank around the corner, which only takes a dip and is, in general, less finicky. I finished my transaction, and as I waited for my cash, the screen displayed an image of two seated women. They looked like sisters, leaned over an open blue box about the size of a horizontal handbag, from which these lighter blue tissue paper puffs tufted like petals on a flower sprung from another dimension, stem imperceptible in ours, roots as hidden as the contents of the present they held above their laps. Their expressions were species of surprise and jubilation at the revelation of whatever gift was within the package they received. And though both were pretty, I was at once captivated with the figure to the left of the frame. Her hair was curly, her sister's was straight. She wore a sleeveless blue royal dress interspersed with pale turquoise prints. Her sister, a sky blue sweater. Maybe because the air where I was was cold, what gripped me most about the woman on the left was this forked fold of flesh cleft into the skin at her right armpit, formed when the woman this image was of extended that limb to lift the base of the box. Her sister held the loose cardboard top aloft, white under the cornflower top, rhomboid from how she tilted the lid of the carton. I was so transfixed with this weird, sublime desire that I totally forgot the cash in the ATM until the machine beeped and retracted the lot. No matter, I was glad enough to glimpse again the woman on the left for even the moment her picture appeared. I visited the Urbank machine a lot. <laughs> I imagined and even had haptic hallucinations of her armpit as soft, yet bristled with the follicles accreted over the course of her day, grew so overcome that I smelled the residue of her preferred moisturizer cream mixed with the tang of her peculiar perspiration. I would claim I lost my senses if I did not feel they were awakened instead by the encounter. Indeed, I became incensed. Okay. Um, I don't have a timepiece up here. But, but I'll, maybe I'll read one or two small sections. So this, there, there are four sections in this text. I'll just read this. Uh, part of it takes place at a bookstore and a bar, kind of between a bookstore and a bar. Once Matamai Yankevsky finished his presentation at Rote, Alenka Luzman invited those of us in attendance to the children's section at the back of the bookstore, where a woman undressed and lay prone on a table cushioned with towels, tucked under a sheet for the purpose. Cage and I bought wine at the little bar set up on the glass case that displayed the vintage speculative science texts. BC arrived later to the presentation than we did and spent the duration she caught outside the door, where she was attentive and able also to puff on her vape. The steam that left her mouth after drags framed and emphasized the letters of the shop name, which from where we sat were mirror images on the windowpane. 
B.C. convened with Cage and I near the register after she purchased her plastic cup of wine across the store. We scoped the clicks between shelves in the simple maze of document storage and purveyance. Do not speak to me, B.C. said after a minute or so of silence. I am so pissed with you, and you do not even have the decency to know what for. Enlighten me. You medusa'd me. So I'm Perseus, I said. Fuck off, said B.C. I Perseused you, I said. <laughs> Perseusecuted is the dictionary definition, she said. A clutch of attendants stood on the rainbow rug in the square halogen children's section at the rear of the store. Bright books arrayed on shelves around their knees, spines well within the reach of the target market. Alenka Luzman requested suggestions for scenes to follow the ones she showed us earlier on our mobile phones. She wanted to draft the next segment of the film together with the audience and draw the storyboard on the body of the model. No one stepped forward nor spoke. Remember the last time, Luzman said, we zoomed out through the studio office. There was an extended pause in which visitors shifted from one foot to the other and spectators beyond the fence of tiny stacks with whispers drifted a distance from the center of activity, perhaps to avoid the appeal to contribute. To the street, said one volunteer. On a screen in the edit booth, said another. Cut, said Luzman. Both are good. We can sketch them in parallel. Who will draw? Luzman started to mark out boxes on the right leg and flank of the model. Perhaps that's where I'll rest. Thank you very much. I have a unique privilege today. The first year we were here together, I got to introduce Ms. Valentina Calvace, and I get to again, which is very pleasant. It's lucky. On the way out. Valentina Calvace is a bilingual writer. Her most recent work has been published in Vice, Rio Grande Review, and in the all-female anthology Cuerpos by the Spanish public publishing house Planeta, where she will also publish her first novel in 2020. She tries to avoid mediocrity at all costs. Please welcome Valentina Calo. Of the thousand uh, jokes that I was practicing on the shower today, in the morning, in the morning, um, I cannot think of any right now. But the consolation prize, my consolation prize, is that I made an entrance. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> uh, the hard thing about reading when you're um, long form writer is. Um, that 
it's really hard to choose which part to read. Uh, all of them seem so interesting. Um, so, because this is mainly my approach to life, uh, especially when it gets overwhelming, I'm going to start um, from the beginning. So this is part one, and it's called An Event. If the couple could have known that this event will change forever the course of their perfectly married existence, existences, they would have still have done it again, because no human is wrong, not even when the evidence suggests otherwise. This event had been in the head of Gay Padilla, husband of Dasha Howe, for two months. It first occurred to him when he was at his crappy one-star hotel room near Union Square in San Francisco. It had been his first time in the Bay Area, but when he crossed the automatic doors of SFO Airport and saw the gray sky, he knew that his mother had been lying to him. There was something better than Southern California. There was something better than working class till you die to Mecula. It was, of course, San Francisco and the promise of the flip-flops with which its visitors arrived to its pine-dotted land. It is hard to know what exactly was what Gabe felt, if it was excitement or dizziness. It could have been something out of this world, like, say, a dramatically divine epiphany, or it could have been that he was without his ex-wife for the first time in five years. Uh, the elation of hating marriage, marriage merely for social convention. A male tradition of not acknowledging that they got to one knee, first and foremost, because they were scared of so many things. Things like San Francisco, for starters. The trip was uneventful, but for him, every single block line with the Victorian houses and the homeless junkies felt like part of a prophecy, and even when he wouldn't accept it, the last day before coming back to his, to his echo parlors, Angeles, a glimpse of an idea popped out in his mind, an idea like any other which started like any other with a bland what-if. Poor Gabe, he didn't even want to elaborate on what subconscious Gabe was really thinking about, <laughs> which was no less than what if, oops, what if I, oops, we moved to San Francisco. Then he spotted a couple of newspapers sitting on a chair at the airport gate. He thought about taking a look at rent prices, but he quickly changed his mind and swore to not go there and sat down next to a gorgeous 20-something that smelled a bit earthy or humid, who said, I wouldn't live anywhere but here. The rest of California is like one town. You know, Pearl, Dasha, our important girl here, was late, a whole hour late, when she picked up her husband from the always atrocious LAX domestic Arrival's corpse-eye. You wouldn't believe it, Gabe. It was like everybody looked just like you, she said. Glad to see you too, loving wife, he said back with the usual passive-aggressive nice tone. The drive was quiet. He said the trip had been just more of the same and then shut up for the rest of the way. He remembered Hyde Ashbury as well as the metallic echoes of the Golden Gate. He had spent the rest of his salary in taxes and whatnot, but what wasn't but that wasn't important, or at least it was worth it. 
for the entertainment he was now having by himself in his own little brain. Dasha parked the car outside their house in Echo Park and went quickly inside to shut herself in the bathroom. Partly because she had been constipated for days, partly because she hated every minute of this fucking marriage. Gabriel, the interesting journalist, as she had called him after the first date, had become a monosyllabic bedmate who she, suspect, who she suspected thought of her as intellectually inferior. She took a good shit, thank God. <laughs> the three-day-old dishes in the sink didn't surprise Gabe, but he still went for the comment about questioning his wife's laziness. What would her mother think about she, what she had become? He laughed. Later, when they were in bed, while Dasha was snoring lightly against Judy Garland's obnoxious voice in the TV, he contemplated divorce. Maybe he could do better. Maybe he could do the mushroomy girl, and maybe they could, they could both live in a small apartment in San Francisco, appropriate only for fantasies about fucking 20-somethings. Dasha woke up gasping for air. He quickly closed his eyes to avoid, to avoid conversation and ended up quickly falling asleep. What had woken up Dasha was a no, nocturnal dyspnea, but something worse. Good dick. Or the memory of it. She had been fooling around with one of their colleges at, newspaper, at the newspaper a short, dark-haired guy with Crohn's disease who didn't look good. Quite the contrary, actually, but once naked, transformed into, well, something. <laughs> he had been interested in her conversation. Even when they were having sex, he would stop the thrusting just to ask her things. Science, philosophy, art, go. Science first, philosophy second, who cares about art? And the moaning started again. Dasha went back to sleep with the memory of the other guy's tongue eating her ass. When she woke up, Gabe was taking a shower with the news playing on the radio. She thought, she thought about divorce. She wasn't sure she could do better because when Gabe proposed to her, she got dropped from community college and her dreams of becoming an anthropologist now seemed kind of ridiculous to her. One thing, though, was that they, nev that was that they had never had kids. And that was all thanks to her. Let's just say, subconsciously, Dasha always doubted the idea of forever, especially if it involved Gabe's round face. Breakfast, maybe, Gabe sort of ordered with a towel around his hips. Dasha jumped out of bed and went to the dirty kitchen to make some oatmeal. Breakfast is ready, she yelled amicably, more or less. I don't have time, Gabe said, waving, waving goodbye while he would walk to the door. The bastard. The motherfucking bastard. <laughs> this little number had been happening for a while now. So she took the oatmeal, got out of the house, and threw it directly into the Chevy's windshield. For a moment, they looked at each other to assess who was the most powerful. Gabe opened the door and walked towards her and slapped her in the face. Slapped her in the face slapped her in the face. A neighbor went out of his little neighboring house after he saw what was happening through the dusty screens of his window. Good morning, the neighbor shouted from his front yard and sneezed right after. Good morning, Dada, Dasha shouted back with her hand on her cheek. 
Good morning, Gabe kind of murmured. Then silence. All three sets of eyes taking turns to take a look at each other at each other as if this was some sort of pinball game. Finally, I'm very sorry, but that cannot happen here, the neighbor said. I agree. I apologize, Mr. Gabe didn't recall the name. Mr. Fortuna, Dasha stepped in. Dasha suddenly felt that maybe there was some kind of hope in the world. Maybe people did care about other people being slapped in the face on the streets. She dusted off her shoulder as a sign of, look, I am not trying to get in the middle of a marriage, God forbid, but whatever you have to do, sir, you do it in the privacy of your own home. Dasha then remembered why she was an hopeful person, <laughs> why she fucked who she fucked, and why she never, and why she never had, why she never said hi to Mr. Fortuna, and why she was slapped in the face by a fucking loser. Ugh, I really need to take to take out the trash, she barked, walking towards the house with imaginary iron legs. Gay Padilla, confused by his neighbor's complicity, followed her to ask for, forgi for forgiveness, or in his own lexicon, sympathy. No, she said. Sorry, no sympathy for you today, sir. No, he asked, half incredulously, half foot, half pushing it. Dasha looked him in the eye and told him to leave the house. Not everything has to be a hint, at least not today. She closed her eyes when she shut the front door lightly, almost imperceptibly. Within her closed eyes, she felt content. Content that all the marriage thing was coming to an end and, she, and that she eventually would be on her way to make stuff happen for herself. She felt content until she became bitter. Yes, money. She ha then had to look for an apartment. Then became more bitter at the fact that she didn't have more than $300 in her savings account and an engagement ring that probably wouldn't cost much more than a highlights appointment at a hairdresser in Beverly Hills. Oh, but if only she would have finished college. If only she would have listened to her inner voice that told her to never trust a man who talks about himself. <laughs> if only painful words. She washed her face she wash, she her face and decided to call sick for the day, then went to Rodeo Drive for a walk. That was instant therapy. Rodeo Drive. So tacky. So full of tasteless individuals that immediately made her feel better. It was something she had discovered on her own. On her own. She quickly got bored from the designer windows and the tourists crammed in mediocre sidewalk restaurants. She got bored of the bleached bl bleach blondes with no-so-fresh manicures and the polished dogs with their heads on the pavement, dreaming of colder floors. She got bored and thought of a drink. She quickly found a place in Wilshire Boulevard that sold wine by the glass and was totally empty. After the second glass of a ridiculous Californian blend, she asked the waitress her name. Adasa, the, waiter, the waitress said. Ada what? Dasha responded laughing. Needless to say, it didn't sit well with the waitress. Dasha had one more glass and a cup of coffee and somehow managed to drive back home. In the late afternoon, when the sun was getting rusty orange, she opened the front door, threw himself into the couch, and passed out to wake up in the middle of the night with a dry mouth and a terrible feeling. This wasn't going to last. 
in three days, give or take, she would be in the same living room with Gabriel in front of her talking things through. Fuck. Gabe wasn't doing much better, but at least he was confident, or so. He had paid for a couple of nights in a terrible hotel in El Segundo, two blocks from the newspaper they worked for. After paying for the couple of nights, Gabe knew that he didn't need more because he was sure he was going to get he was going to be back to his house in Echo Park soon. His day at work had been a little bit hazy, always looking at the San Francisco map he had bought in LA to be prepared for his trip and looking to Dash's cubicle that remained empty. To convince himself of the barbarity of the bump, he thought about Dasha. She thought about how Dasha didn't have any money, although he also thought she could sell the furniture and make a couple of bucks out of it. And his heart skipped a bit to the feeling of having a wife who he didn't know at all. His heart slowed and he dreamt about the Presidio. Since he had been there, it was mostly a patchwork. It was mostly a patchwork of memories of parks and houses and raw feelings of childhood fun. He woke up at midnight from the sharp scream of a homeless guy outside. Gabe went to the bathroom and drank water from the faucet. A residual operation from his childhood when his mother told him that where she was from, they didn't have any drinkable water or any type of water for what it's worth. So you better drink as much as you can and always tap. Her voice echoed. He looked at himself in the mirror, the same man who went to his mother, his mother's funeral and didn't cry. Because boys where she was from didn't cry, not even if they were born in, con in countries where they have water to drink. Dasha spent the whole night obsessing over how bad she was. She didn't love her husband, but that had to be provisional the moment he realized how bad he had been at being decent, the moment she was going to love him again. But people who are sure never, never, never make backup plans. And well, she did. And well, she did. Thank you. Okay, um, it's, it is an honor to introduce Gidi Lassa, who is a poet, small press publisher, and a translator. She is the author of Conversations with a 3D Model Point Cloud Image of a Coral Reef, El Bordo, and some to be published, a fictionalized memo memoir of Kathy Acker. She is the translator of Felizmente by Lynn Heginian and Cosas de Cada Posible Relación Chocando Unas Con Otras by Juliana Spar. She recently edited the anthology First, Second, and Third Year Students Work MFA in Creative Writing Literature Department, University of California, San Diego, 2018. Please welcome Giri. Thank you, Valentina. Hello, everyone. Um, today I'm going to read from the manuscript I submitted as my 
thesis uh, in order to get my, hopefully soon to get my degree here. <laughs> um, the title of this project is um, El Bordo, a book of translation. It might change, but that's like a provisional title. Um, so I'm just gonna start. Persona, pueblo, lugar, Mexican, benigno, parallel of latitude, esta línea, reclamaciones y pretensiones, línea recta, the said line, boundary line, América, firm, between, línea divisoria, línea, above described line. Tratado, upon, between, appointed, opinión, militar, posible fuere, military, inmediatamente, concedan, hostilidad, ocupado, entered. Landmarks, boundary, common, ciudadano, impuesto, limite, salida, establish, territorial, proceedings, tax, work, southern, free and common. Removing, define, mexicanos, territorio, regencia, género, citizens, owners, Citizens, established, remove Mexicanos, possesses, territorio, indicados, charge. Ciudadanos, España, corporaciones, proper, free, stipulate, propiedad, templo, propiedad. Estados Unidos, España. You are eight years old and you have to memorize and your name can't do what we do in order to go to the new language. Your name is Angeles and, you're, and you notice the difference between the trees and the marble and the park. They stand still and someone is making a phone call. They listen to the new language and they go together towards it. It's uncanny. They are uncanny to this new place and they feel it. You remember the friend's house and greeting people than living to mother. Dividing limits. Método. Autoridad. Plan. United States of America. Método.
single soul, soul, you language, my body, you language, my skin, you language, writing, and try to analyze every single possibility and things you encounter. You analyze yourself in recognition of finding yourself, and that looks like control. You analyze other people's actions, and you make soup with love. You want it, you feel anxious of the feeling of going away, but that seems the most comfortable place to be. You become through literature, you become another person, and literature and poetry changes you, you. You, you. Futuro, límite, tribus salvajes, occupied. Occupied, armada, persona, cattle. Género, territory, fuerza, mexicano, objeto. Persona. Fuerza, channel, semejante, palabra. Indio, unnecessary, prisionero, release. Treated, receiving, authority. Being. You arrive and feel the passing of time in this land. It feels safe through far from the borderlands. You enter her office and she resembles a stone, a marble stone of knowledge. And very old one. You wanted to cry, but you contain yourself. You saw language and pictures hanging in the walls. A blind man looking for an office, a transgender queer queen facilitating words. You felt the cold air of the afternoon in your skin, and it felt good. You couldn't be elsewhere. You were tired, but you managed language, language, language. Can you speak a little slower? I can follow what you're saying. I don't understand that word, that gesture, that feeling, that warmth you are. You are a ghost appearing behind an old window. You don't like anything, and any at all of the writing is a form of translation, of language, of image, of sound, of feeling, of gesture, of memory. You are a translation of time not so long ago. You were concerned with the powers of letters and their figures and bodies, resembling strangers passing by to drink a cup of tea. As an inhabitant of the borderlands, it is my duty to tell you the story and the history of the borderlands. A map comes out of this dreamland, awakened to be burned. You burned every inch of fabric, you depend on it. And you don't really think about it, you walk for hours and talk for more, wanting to destroy the other person in an appropriate way to say it. You look at faces around you and they look like you. You have a headache, you argue, an argument is found in this land. You defeat your enemy through language. Indian, occupant, presente, posible, effect, sentimientos, restoration, millions, signature, paid together, present, posible, fondo, tratado, Indian.
custom houses, denomination, place, continuance, leaving, subject, payment, property, required, authorities, port, neutral nation, originado, discharge, place. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to introduce Allison. Um, Allison is a writer, performer, and lover of sweet and savory pastries from Middle Illinois. Her writing focuses on sound experiments, first-generation perspectives, and most anything concerning whimsy. Her work has been featured in Rhino magazine. Let's all welcome Allison. that gave me. Hi. Um, thank you all for coming. I feel really honored to be uh, graduating with this group of third years um, and to be reading with them. That's pretty spectacular. So thank you all for coming and thank you third years and thank you professors and thank you all for sitting here. Thank you podium. Um, <laughs> okay, so I wrote a collection of short stories that are cross-genre uh, about a nuclear family that is um, two immigrant parents and a child who was born in America. Um, and the child, who's the subject, who's my protagonist, spends a lot of time with his dad. So I'm gonna read you a day in their week where they hang out together. This is called Tuesday, a present demi-adventure. Oh, and I should add, uh, the summer before this, they were in Malawi, so he's reflecting on his time, having done some traveling. Tuesday, present dummy adventure. Buckle up, jive baby, we gotta hit the road and pick up some flowers. Sweet baby's dad adjusted his rearview mirror so he could see if his sweet baby had successfully belted himself into his booster chair. Perpetually triple-checking, sweet baby's dad swung around to the back of his 94 Honda Accord to check sweet baby's chair. Seatbelt buckling, affirmative. Nice job, little man. 10-4, okay. Sweet Baby's dad gave a nod of approval, and this made Sweet Baby warm inside. What are we listening to today? Oldies or newbies? Oldies, please play track two. Sweet Baby's dad popped in a CD that was blank, save for handwritten purple ink spelling grooves. He pulled into a mega mart and circled the lot until a family parking spot opened up. Sweet Baby swayed in the back of the car as Barry White's Just the Way You Are played. 27 years old, Quinton was the father to the sharpest five-year-old he'd ever met. He glanced at his rearview mirror and saw Sweet Baby's fists waving on two and four and chuckled to himself. Until Sweet Baby's mother, Quinton had been a single digit devoid of anyone but himself. He was born alone, immigrated alone, and at one point owned one outfit as if it was all he could afford. Sweet Baby looked at his father who was clearly thinking something fierce. His dad had a habit of wordlessly gesturing his upper body as if in conversation. This, especially in the serenity of the driver's seat, a place Quinton likened to that of an office desk. 
He lifted his right hand from the wheel and gestured as if to say, I'll do this, then this, and then we'll go here, come back home, and I'll fix dinner. Dad, asked sweet baby. Sweet baby, returned his father. Dad, began sweet baby. Andrew, finished his father. Just checking. You're moving without talking again. Sweet Baby removed a single plastic building brick from his coat pocket to examine. It was cool in his warm, puffy hands. The seasons were turning everything crispy and auburn. Fallen leaves were whispering, and the wind whipped them from street corner to alleyway. Thank you, dear one. A family parking spot opened, and Sweet Baby's dad zipped into this space. He helped his son out of the car, and they held hands into the mart. Sweet Baby loved grocery shopping. <laughs> Such delicious foodstuffs lie fresh and hungry-making in a place so special. Once, while waiting for Les Amis to come on, Sweet Baby saw a commercial for fabric softener. In this commercial, a grown-up is seen having a most horrible time eating dry pancakes until a generous drizzling of Manhattan maple pancake glaze is syruped onto his short stack. Then, then, then the grayscale of his pancake consumption turns to color. Their house plans begin to grow, then flower, and the outdoors, which had been raining the whole commercial, suddenly burst and gleam with sunshine. The subject, also known as the pancake consumer, is then seen dancing into his work clothes and subsequently pirouetting out the door for a day of viewer-assumed productivity. <laughs> this is how the grocery store made Sweet Baby feel, and fresh gravy with Sweet Baby luxuriating in this joyous gallivant. <laughs> All right, Sweet Baby, today's trip is, treat, trip is called Operation Rosie Posey. Today was Momsie's first day back at work, and after her back at work after her promotion, and Quentin thought she might like to come home to something beautiful to look at, something warm on the stove to devour, and fresh sheets to fall into when sleep came due. What do you think of these? Sweet Baby's dad looked to his left where his son once was, only to find he was no longer where he once was. Maybe where he once was was on his right side. Negative. Sweet Baby had disappeared. Quentin's chest cavity suddenly felt empty. With shock dribbling through his major arteries, Quinton knew exactly where his son had departed. His favorite aisle number nine, known to Sweet Baby as the Crunchy Zone. <laughs> Lo and behold, a dance-making Sweet Baby in his second favorite place next to the kettle-cooked chips. In the midst of doing a cabbage patch dance, Sweet Baby's eyes met his father's sunken ones. His father waved him on and Sweet Baby followed. In silence, they returned to the flowers. Sweet Baby's small hand was in his father's. Sweet Baby's father worked with his hands, and for this reason they were dry, with calluses big enough to pinch and hang from. Sweet Baby held his father's hand, running his thumb across a familiar scar where his father had almost lost his thumb. He looked up at his father, tears hanging on the crest of his lower lid. Am I not allowed to pick since I went gone? No, my dear. You may pick. He continued. Before you do... I need you to tell me rule number one because it seems one of us has forgotten. Rule number one, sweet babies are precious ones and precious ones are priceless. And what happens when something priceless disappears? You lose something you can't make again. Sweet baby's father was seldom mad. He didn't shout, but his eyebrows often showed his disappointment. It was when his voice lowered that sweet baby felt a stillness inside himself capable of sinking his shoulders and dragging his feet. Sweet Baby thought back to his Uncle Easton, who could not be made again, and the tears finally fell. Like Uncle Easton, said Sweet Baby. 
Sometimes, sweet baby, yes, he added. Your Uncle Easton was very sick when he went missing. When he came back, your granddad could not heal him. This isn't what happened to you, though. Sweet baby nodded. Life is very precious, my dear, and your life is even more precious to all of us. We only get one sweet baby in our lives. Momsy and I have only been gifted one of you. Yes, Dad, sweet baby sniffed. I love that you explore. Just take your dad with you when you do, especially when there are strangers. Sweet baby's dad brushed one of his son's fluffy cheeks and kissed his forehead. I'm not mad, dear one. I just miss you when you're not here, when you're not near. He bent down to pick up his son so they could hug. Post-hug, he swung sweet baby around so he could sit piggybacked behind him. Now, he started. Which one of these rose bouquets is Momsy going to love most? Sweet baby was feeling quite tender, but took a deep breath to even out. Scanning the flower fridge, he noticed a bouquet of multicolored daisies. Not roses, Dad. Those ones. Sweet baby pointed at a most vibrant bunch. He liked how the colors looked candy-liked. When his dad relieved the flowers from the cold storage, their smell only solidified their need to be purchased. I think she'll love these. Well done. Making their way towards the cash register, Sweet Baby's dad felt him rest his head on his back and exhale, as if in resignation. Should we have ventured to the crunchy zone? Sweet Baby perked up and squeezed his dad's back. Kettle chips! <laughs> and so, Quentin steered them to the chip aisle to make a small boy happy. That sounds delightful. Sweet Baby rubbed his nose on his father's back. Feeling a warm stickiness on his spine, he asked, Am I covered in boogers now? <laughs> Only a few, but I can flick them away. He felt his dad's chest bounce a little. When he peered around the side of his father, he saw raised corners of his mouth, and this made him smile, too. That's pretty gross, my friend. Giggling, Sweet Baby and his father checked out their goodies and made their way home. Sweet Baby's father was sitting at the dining table writing letters. His son had been freshly bathed and was now sitting across from him in his dinosaur jammies. Did we lotion? Sweet baby looked up at his father with his head lowered. Let's see the elbows. Sweet baby displayed his ashen elbows. Any dustier and they'd resemble the texture of powdered donuts. Doesn't it feel tight? Like being stretched? Sweet baby shook his head. He hoped the silence would make his father move on, but this was not the case. <laughs> Knowing his father could be distracted by projects of any sort, he asked, Can I write something? If my memory serves me right, you do owe me some writing. Sweet Baby's dad disappeared into his study where he retrieved the mud prints from their past weekend. Shall we write a poem to accompany this? Looking over at his father's work in progress, he diverted once again. What are you writing? I'm writing letters to loved ones. Holding up the one in front of him, he said, This one is for your grandfather. But he's gone, and we're back in America. Just because people have passed doesn't mean they stop listening or can't be kept alive through memories or our thoughts. He added, Do you remember the flowers your, your grandmother... We, do you remember the flowers we left your grandmother and uncle? Sweet baby nodded. Just as your mother leaves flowers, I leave letters. This one is a thank you letter to your granddad and an update of how well you're doing. I'd like for him to rest well, and I think this update will help him do so. Before I met your grandfather, I sent him letters because I knew it might be a long time before your mother and I could afford to meet him formally. Here, I'll read this one to you. This is the father's letter. Dear granddad, such a funny thing to regard you as such. It seems as we take on titles 
so too does our family recognize us as such. I am writing to you from the comfort of our dining room. Theodora is soon to arrive any moment and our sweet Andrew is sitting across from me. We hope to return next summer to join the family in laying your headstone. I've been reading the Du Bois per your suggestion. Never have I felt so drenched in my doubleness. Surely as the veil has cloaked us all, so too will our son be swept the same. I'm wondering when this happened for you. I wish I'd asked. On to lighter things, I'm stewing greens with a goosey so my son knows where his father is from, too. I ground the melon seeds, as my mother taught me to. Andrew's growing so quickly, and he's already began to outgrow the cardigan you gifted him. I hope the same seamstress is still alive in Blantyre, as we'll have to have a new one sewn for him soon, and he's very fond of that specific piece of clothing. Sweet Baby's father was glad he hadn't written yet about the wool sweater Grandad gave him from his closet to gift Sweet Baby when he's older. Thankful for this intact surprise, he looked to his son, smiling. Am I missing anything? Sweet Baby thought for a moment and shook his head. Maybe you could add that I say hi. I think we've figured out what you're going to be writing today. Let's write your grandfather a letter, shall we? Sweet Baby nodded. You tell me what to write and all, and then at the end you'll sign the letter and add whatever feels good to you. This is Sweet Baby's letter. Dear Grandad, it's me, Sweet Baby. <laughs> I had my first day of kindergarten on Monday. Today is Tuesday. I also went to school today. <laughs> Can I tell him about show and tell? If you'd like, yes. No, I want to tell him about the mud. Here's a letter. On Sunday, my dad let me play in the mud and it was fun. I made mud prints of my hands and feet. Can I send him my mud prints? I think we should frame your mud prints and send a copy of your, to your granddad and a copy of your letter too. That way when you grow older, you can look at these again. Sweet baby agreed. Such sensibility in his father. <laughs> Sweet Baby gasped with a burst of energy. I have an idea for a poem. Do you remember that show? Breaking from writing, Sweet Baby's dad quickly asked, Was this something you two talked about during tea time? Sweet Baby nodded yes. Was it Les Amis? Sweet Baby nodded yes. Then how about we edit it to, Do you remember my favorite show, Les Amis? Yeah! Letter. Do you remember my favorite show, Les Amis? They wrote a poem on that show, and I wrote this poem for you about my mud picture. Mud is crud. Mud is fun. Mud is dirty. Mud is fun. Giggling sweet baby's dad held up his hand for a high five. Did you just come up with that? Yes. Okay, let's work on closing this letter. I hope you're okay, granddad. I miss you, and I love you very big. There was too much heart in sweet baby's declaration for him to suggest editing. How shall I sign it? Sweet baby, parentheses, sometimes Andrew. <laughs> All right, young man, this is brilliantly done. Can I show this to your mother? Sweet baby nodded yes. I think mom might arrive uh, after you've gone to sleep, but she'll stop by your room for a hug even if you're asleep. Sound good? Sounds good. Sweet baby's dad placed his son's letter aside for photocopying and later sealing and sending. He served his son the stew bubbling on the stove top and put an ice cube in it to cool it down as his son was not one for waiting. As his son ate, he returned to his own letter. He wrote in thanks for the wool sweater and felt his letter was ready to be closed. This is the end of the letter. The last thing I'll add, I feel ready now to return to woodworking. When we moved here at Andrew's birth, I was so filled and ready to make this house one your daughter and our son deserved. When my parents passed, you became a father to me. Even still with this guidance, I have been a shade of myself. 
Today is the day I choose to restore my home and be the father my son needs. As you know, I loved my father dearly. He told me, when you set out to do something, be sure it gets done with all the joy in your heart. This is how I hope to live my life, teach my son, and fix this house. You helped me get to this point, and I know how brightly you feel our future is. You were and continue to be a gift to us. All the thanks in my heart for your life and guidance during your time with us. Missing you dearly, Q. Thank you. with children um, because the personality of the child was fantastically written. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I used to teach speech writing to children and uh, when I teach speech writing to adults or high schoolers, they want to write about like the intersection of some horrible things, but when I was teaching speech writing to kids, they're like, I want to write about the history of porn. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
and then after that, it was the ones that seemed to speak about ways of being together that are not. So that, that piece is about desire and, and sex and money. And the, the relationships then that I chose to focus on were ones that hopefully had as little to do with the last of those as possible, but also included it and maybe turned it into something different. <clears throat> the only thing I have to say about that is that what I read is kind of the world outside my protagonist. So that relationship is kind of the story of how how to come from like a journalist to this protagonist. And that is also kind of the constraint that I had like from the people in my workshop group. <laughs> but I, I had that constraint of making it work, like how Dasha then turns into Cornelia, my protagonist. Not turns, but you know, like, uh, it's kind of like the, the, the stage for her. Yeah, that's interesting to find out. I think that's what it is. <laughs> thinking more about the voice of the narrative before the characters, because I thought the characters seemed really cogent to me, but I had to be able to write them in like coming into contact with one another, so it needed the right voice for them to, like the right liaison to get them into the space together, if that makes sense. Um, so I guess the characters, I used to be an improviser, so characters being in one room makes a lot of sense, but you, to be able to describe them correctly was was my was the biggest issue for me, or that's the thing that I struggled with the most. So I think maybe the relationship with the narrators to the characters was what I was concerned with first, mm -hmm. and then everything kind of fell into place afterwards. Okay, so for me, in terms of like, if I think about relationships and like in this book, uh, I guess I need to talk a little bit about the book. So this is a book I didn't, I feel like I didn't choose to write and it just like came to me like as part of my process of like living in this country and like being here uh, as a Mexican. So I feel like uh, like all of these people which are like part of my family or people I've met throughout like meeting here, it just, they just like came natural to me and like to the book, but I didn't thought about it. It just happened. Uh, so yeah, that was my process. Yeah. Thank you. Is your book going to be published? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I will be. <laughs> Sort of what were the challenges you faced along the way to get where it is? Like, 
Where did it start and what happened while you were writing it? What challenges did you have to face that you met? Well, that's, I guess, a hard question. Like, what was the question? <laughs> Basically talk about, like, the process of what you started with and then how you got to where you are now. Like, what happened in between and how you got to where it is now. Okay, so this book started... Uh, as another project, actually. It, it's another book that I just uh, published and that started like an event class. Um, it, it's such a, like for me, it, it was such a weird process because I started like with El Bordo, uh, which was like a book of like impressive poems after like the 2016 election. And so I started working with this professor and uh, the book started to change. It became more visual and more about like maps and uh, images about the border. Um, uh, and I guess something that really influenced this book and the writing was like the different classes I was taking mm -hmm. in the program uh, with like all the different professors, the friend on band, uh, uh I didn't took the class with that book, but she, I worked closely with her throughout this process. Um, but I guess what I want to say is that, like, for me, writing this project really was a very challenging process because I feel like uh, being a Mexican in this country right now is like, mm -hmm. top, and I don't know, it's like, I don't know, challenging in many ways. Uh, so it was, it was very challenging. I was up there. Yeah. Um, I, I actually entered this program to write poems and I was having, as Ben has described, experience with the page where nothing was just nothing was happening um, or I was writing things that I just didn't want to show anyone and I don't I'm not I'm not sure I can call myself a fiction writer but I was teaching for Anna Joy teaching fiction and she was talking about it in a way that made it feel accessible again I just had one poetry writing class where or one fiction writing class where I was having fun but then it was apparently horrible <laughs> um, so I was like, yeah, I'm not, I, this is bad, so I shouldn't. But then uh, I was writing once, like there's an exercise that the students were doing, so I was like, yeah, what the heck, I'm not writing anything, I'll try it. Um, and it was a lot of fun. And then after that, I was like, oh yeah, writing can be fun. Mm -hmm. So from then, I, I kind of started thinking, every time I'm going to be in a Word document, it's going to be fun for me. I'm going to make this a party for myself. Um, because if I'm going to be here, I have to make it worth uh, my like not just labor but my like emotions. I, I need to be having fun here, um, and then it just took off from there. Like once you start having fun, then it's like oh I can have fun this way and I can have fun mm -hmm. this way, and it started to feel really expansive. Um, and then several pages later, I was like, this is my project, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. I think it was a tremendous gift.
feeling, let me tell you, you should try it once. <laughs> 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 it's not. <laughs> it's not that good. <laughs> I'm not complaining. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, yeah, that's 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 the most amazing thing about writing a love form project because. Yeah, yeah, that that sense of discovery that occurs while writing. So there's that section. The muddy middle, mm. which for me was kind of most of grad school. <laughs> <laughs> I, I this 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 piece came from an image that I jotted down four years ago, and I started writing the story my first year here in Professor Springer's workshop, and it, I, yeah, I'm sort of finding because it's four sections, finding how they connected, how realizing that they were all part of the same thing, but wondering sort of how, how they fit was a big challenge. And also, justice, because with fiction especially, and poetry, um, I find it's a little easier to be explicitly autobiographical mm -hmm. or to draw from experience. Mm -hmm. um, with with fiction, I felt the need to. Obviously, we're inspired by people around us and by by the things that we're experiencing. I felt the need to do justice to the people that inspired the work by obscuring, by by protecting them, and, and sort of fictionalizing as much as possible. Uh, so. Yes, I iconoclasm. So avoiding the image, working with image, and also avoiding the image, mm -hmm. kind of sidestepping it continually. So it's not too <coughs> like. Mm -hmm. um, the reading format is really interesting to me. This is my first time in a space like this, um, so I'm really curious, you guys, how do you guys decide what to say up here? <laughs> 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 it's so hard. I think uh, both Valentina and Zach had mentioned, like, what am I going to, I had a hard time figuring out what to read. And I also, like, for weeks, I've been like, what am I going to read? Especially when you're doing long form and everything is wrapped up in something else that came previously. It's so hard to, like, want to preface things, but also not spoil everything that you're, is coming next. And it's all, I don't know. I feel like I'm still in process too, so it's really difficult. But at the end of the day, you gotta like whatever's gonna be the most. Camille told me this morning, what's gonna be the most fun for you to read? <laughs> that I know. Good advice. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess for me, it just depends on my mood. Mm -hmm. So today, I I don't know. I just selected some pieces that I felt in the mood to read today. Uh, and that I felt it was they were gonna be like conceivably for me, so that's how I choose. That's great. Yeah. Same. Same comment thread here. No, but you know the thing is, I I also want to be honest. Um, I mean, I'm a fiction writer, but I want to be honest too, <laughs> which means. I can read like the most beautiful parts of my pieces. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And those beautiful parts would be like, oh my god, she's a good writer. <laughs> <laughs> but that would be because, like, it, you have to think about what, what about the other seat, you know, about what, the, what message you want, you want to send through. And um, at, at least I feel that. Beautified parts of, of what I write. So I was curious, but you pick like what you think's you know press everyone or like thinks is technically the best. Or I mean, if like um, I were interviewing for a job here, I would totally choose like the most <laughs> impressive parts of my writing. <laughs> but since in here were my students and the students of my colleagues and. Like my colleague, uh, <laughs> the professor, uh, <laughs> so it is a very different. It, it is a very different public. So I want to like honor that diver the diversity in, in audience that we yeah. have. Yeah, readings are like invitations. So, yeah. So in a way, you have to read something that's not going to box out the people around you. Definitely. Yeah. Can I? I'm stealing Aiden's question from last week. Well, people's book. So I, I, I can go. So when I got 
And to the MFA, I did very different writing than what I ended up doing. Uh, and especially with this book, I feel like this book got me out of my comfort zone in a very drastic way and changed me and my writing in a lot of ways. So now that I can see it from a distance, I feel like that's a triumph or a positive thing I got from the whole process. Uh, that my writing changed and I changed and I got to write a book about that. So, text that I read is a lot of it is based around this performance piece that this director gives. The moment when I, this only happened this, this, this quarter in the thesis writing process, realized what that performance was, was pretty sweet. <laughs> Like 
a, a massive, tremendous challenge to like, rise to that occasion, that caliber of, of writing. And somebody had told me before I came here, like, your writing is going to change a lot before you come in. And I was like, mm-hmm. Um, and then I read Zach's work, and I was like, this is amazing. Wow. Like, I think the community is huge. It's wild to be in a room with all these like very brilliant minds who are producing these things that are so separate and apart and different from the things that you're you're making. You get to give them feedback about the brilliant things that they're writing. That's what is the word for this? <laughs> um, miraculous. Uh, yeah, it's been it's a great gift to get people's work and then have them care about your your feedback about it. Be challenged in that. Sunglasses. In tone, I was like, yes. I 